Now, in Romans 4, uh, we started this last week, and we continue to examine the life of Abraham. And I told you, Paul is trying to teach us more about the gospel of God. And so in order to do that, Paul does what he often does, and he appeals to the Old Testament. And this time, he's appealing to the father of our faith. There's no one better to teach the gospel of God than Abraham himself, for he is, if you will, the originator, because he is the original father of faith. He is the one that trusted in Christ alone through faith alone. And so as we see his faith unfold, we understand our faith better. Now, there's three things going on in Romans 4 as, as far as I've been able to see. And you don't have to worry about writing them down, but I'm just walking through those three things. Last week, we talked about what is this great blessing. And my intention is this week to talk about who is it for and then ultimately why is it given. But I couldn't get away from what we talked about last week with what is the great blessing. Of course, we know what that is, right? And we can communicate that theologically. But I wonder sometimes, is our life grounded in the truth of that reality? That there is but one blessing from God, and that is the fact that God justifies the ungodly. That's the great blessing. Now, I also realize that all of us enjoy a great many blessings from the Lord, and rightly so. And we celebrate those blessings and we're thankful for those blessings. I think I mentioned last week, you know, the popular thing is now the culturally Christian thing to do is to wear the shirt that says hashtag blessed. And that's totally fine. Uh, if you have one, that's great. But as I rolled into this week, I thought to myself, I wonder how far I can get into the week before I actually see that shirt. And so Monday I worked, my head was down all day, uh, you know, filling prescriptions and really didn't have time to look up. I rolled into Tuesday and I thought, well, I need to study all day because I had three things going on this week. So Tuesday I pretty much sat at my desk and, and studied. And I think it was Wednesday, Paige and I decided to go to lunch. So we ran to town to eat lunch together. And the lady that was at the register had the shirt on, hashtag blessed. And I thought, okay, there you go. I, I barely even got my week started looking for the shirt. And, and of course, there's the shirt. And again, I, I, it's a good thing. Paige and I really are counting this season of our life that we're in now as one that is, is very blessed. I told you guys going into this season of life, I was super concerned that I was going to sit and cry all the time uh, because the kids had moved out and you know we were going to be lonely. And there has been moments of that, but there's also, I think, in a greater sense, been this new blessing that had always been there, but the light was kind of shed on it just a little bit more. And that's enjoying the blessings that our kids are walking in right now. We're seeing God work in their lives in such a mighty way, and it's just filling our hearts with great joy. Audrey's Jonathan, he will graduate seminary, I think, just in a couple of weeks this next month. And so that's going to open up a whole lot of doors for their life and then you know, they want to move back here and get as close as they possibly can. And so they've been married three years. And so, you know, what we're thinking might happen to come along the way really soon. And so we're just enjoying seeing what God is doing in their life. But it's not just odd. It's, it's Abby as well. You know, Nathan and Abby are planning on getting married in June. And we're so thankful for God providing Abby with a godly man. We've prayed that since she was born. And here the Lord has done that. And we're rejoicing and seeing another godly man come into the family. And I talked with her this week about her choice to go in medicine. And she felt confirmed in 
the Lord moving her in that direction. And so I was rejoicing with her. And so we were celebrating that together. And then there's Jonathan. We went to see him this week just to take him out to supper and spend some time with him. And he's finally starting to find his groove at school. And he feels confirmed in the direction that he's going in in his studies, which is pretty good for an 18-year-old boy, I might add. It's pretty remarkable. He might change 12 times, but... Pretty remarkable right now. Of course, Jonathan is, is most excited about Emily, his girlfriend, than school will ever be. But yet, we're celebrating the things that they're celebrating, and we are finding this season of life just absolutely filled with joy, just like you guys. And I always encourage you, I know you're stressed and you're busy, and I realize that, but you better sit down and just express thanksgiving to God for all these wonderful, beautiful children that the Lord has given you. They're such a blessing. This time in life will never be replaced. Enjoy it to the fullest and please slow down. If you ask them, they'll tell you they really don't want to be as busy as you're making them. They do enjoy doing nothing. And so just really enjoy this time with them because it goes away so quickly. But I say all of that to say this, at the end of all of this, you have to understand that there is still just one great blessing from the Lord, and that is salvation. And when you compare all those things that I talked about just now to what we have in Jesus Christ, there's really no comparison. If you tried to compare them, you would say all that stuff that I just talked about is not really a blessing at all when it's compared to the blessing and joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And the reason that I wanted to go back to this this morning and share this with you is because I was reminded in a pretty hard way from the Lord over the last two weeks that that truth, you have to preach yourself that truth often because you get so caught up in the blessings of today, you forget to focus on the true blessing that lies tomorrow. And I'll tell you one of the ways that the Lord really brought me back into that reality and was telling me that I was, we were talking about a little bit Wednesday night, we're way too worldly minded and way too worldly focused that we've become no heavenly good because we've lost sight of heaven. I've gotten a text from... Um, Matthew's dad, Eddie Richardson, Ed Richardson, over a couple of texts over just the past month. And one of those texts, he, he said, you know, it's been 40 months. It, it came one week. And he'd asked me to pray for that. started Matthew on some new medicine and asked me to pray for that. So I passed that along to you. Just pray that the new medicine would start to work. But, you know, I, I said in the said in the midst of that text, and I've yet to respond because I need to spend more time in prayer before I respond, but his last 40 months and my, my last 40 months have been radically different. You know, I've celebrated the last 40 months and some things that the Lord has done in my son's life that has just absolutely filled me with joy. His last 40 months, he has set before his son who cannot speak and who cannot walk and He has fed Him, and He has cared for Him every single waking day. And if we get too caught up in the daily routines and the daily blessings and lose sight of heaven, when we find ourselves in that moment, and beloved, you know we all will one day, maybe not to that degree, but you find yourselves in sorrow, deep sorrow, 
And if you have not settled in your heart that my one blessing is Jesus Christ, when that day hits, you're going to stumble greatly. Because you've built your world around the earthly blessings rather than the heavenly blessings. And that's no place to live. So as the Lord reminded me in a very challenging way in the past couple of weeks that I've struggled in prayer for, I was just reminded, son, you better get your eyes up. You better get your eyes up. Because not every day is going to be like the days that you've enjoyed the last several years. And I know some of you could say amen to that much more deeply than I know. But I know my day's coming. And so I encourage you, enjoy today and offer praise and thanksgiving to God like nobody's business. But you better get your eyes up. Because there's a greater blessing. There's a true blessing in Jesus Christ. Now, who is this blessing for? I know I dropped all the heavy stuff on you at the start and want to move on, but we have to move on in the text, right? So who is this great blessing for that we have in Jesus Christ? Now, Paul's trying to explain that to us in Romans chapter 4, but you do realize he's building Romans chapter 4 off Genesis chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to run back with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to see how Paul constructs his great doctrine of salvation is by faith alone. Something that you have to preach to yourself daily because we're so motivated by our own works and our own efforts. But in Genesis chapter 15, we find the conversion of a man. Now, let me tell you, that's rare. And I was thinking about this. As far as finding the moment somebody is saved, converted to Christ is a, is a difficult thing. In the Gospels, yes, there's a number of places that you find the moment somebody is converted. But you have to remember that the Son of God is there. And so he's pronouncing them saved in the moment. To give you a few examples, you remember the woman who had been bleeding or sick for 12 years, touched the hem of the garment. And Jesus responds to her, woman, your faith has saved you. The day that the 10 lepers came up to Jesus and he healed all 10 and, and he sent them on their way to go give testimony to the priests. And one of them came back and offered thanksgiving to the Lord. And the Lord responds to the one that came back. He says, you know, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Again, there's endless story. Blind Bartimaeus, Lord, I want to see. And the Lord responds, your faith has saved you. But you get outside of the Gospels. Acts, it's a little easier. But you get beyond that, it becomes very difficult to pinpoint the moment somebody is converted. And you get into the Old Testament, it's even more difficult to pinpoint the moment that someone's converted. Jeremy and I were talking about this Wednesday night. I mean, when, at what point was Noah converted? At the moment the Bible says, and he found favor with the Lord? Or at the moment he started building the boat? At the moment he finished the boat? At the moment he closed the door? At the moment he got off the boat? I mean, at what point are we going to drop? Okay, Noah's converted right there. So you can roll through all these Old Testament saints and, and find great difficulty. Let me ask you a question. When were the 12 converted? Good luck with coming up with that one. I mean, a lot of men will argue those points, but that's a pretty tough thing to figure out when Peter was converted. Oh, he was when he was called. Really? Well, you're going to struggle with some passages that happen later on in John when Jesus says, then they finally believed. And you're like, what? What does that mean? But what God did in Genesis 15 is of great help to us because God did not want us to be 
confused about this father of our faith. Look with me in Genesis 15, verse 6, and you see the very moment that Abraham was converted, was saved. Genesis 15, 6, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it or credited it to him as righteousness. I don't know of anybody else in the Old Testament that gets that. God says, here it is in this very moment. This is when Abraham was born again. And if you want to argue that, which I'm about to give you some arguments for that, you have to realize Paul wrote Romans 4 based on that truth. Paul assumes that Abraham was converted in Genesis 15, 6 because all of Romans 4 is built around that one passage. And so if you don't want to just pay attention to the simple truth that's spoken to us in verse 6, well, then you've got to wrestle with Romans 4. But here's what's difficult about that. Turn your Bible back to Genesis chapter 12, and we've got some confusing things. In verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Genesis 12, verse 4, So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. God called, Abraham went, and he went as an unconverted man. You need to let that sink in for just a minute. Because if we didn't have Genesis 15, 6, and I said to you, when do you think Abraham was converted? They go, oh, that's easy, man. That's over in Genesis chapter 12. God called him, he went. He obeyed the call of God. He was converted. No, he was not. That's when he was 75 years old. In Genesis 15, verse 6 comes much later in his life. I'll show you in just a few moments. But he wasn't converted in Genesis 12. In fact, it gets even more difficult to understand. Look down with me in Genesis 12, verse 8. Then Abram proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent. He, went, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What's Abraham doing in verse 8? What do we call that? Worship. Do you realize that at this point in his life he's still unconverted and he's built an altar and he's calling upon the name of the Lord? And again, if I didn't have Genesis 15, 6, and I said, well, when was he converted? You'd say, well, it has to be either here or before here because he's worshiping God. But that's not the only place. Look at 13. Look at verse, uh, verse 3. Genesis 13, verse 3. Abraham went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Look in chapter 13, verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent, and he came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. The guy is not only worshiping God, he's consistent in the worship of God, and he's unconverted. You're like, how do you know that? Genesis 15, 6. It was at that moment God reckoned it to him as righteousness, and all these things are going on in his life. Look at Genesis chapter 14. I'll do you one more. This one may shock you all the most. Look at Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And look what Abraham does. Abraham gave him a tenth of all. He just tithed. So let me ask you, can God call and you obey and be unconverted? Abraham was. Can you worship the Lord and be unconverted? Abraham was. Can you be consistent in worship and be unconverted? Abraham was. Could you give your monies to the Lord and be unconverted? Abraham was. Now, when that came across my mind, I had to sit down and give it a great deal of thought. And I went to reading some of what some of others said, and I believe it was Martin Luther. If it wasn't Luther, I can't remember the second guy who said this, but this was their comment about this. A man can have a great many experiences with God and yet remain unconverted. Now that's another fine place that I could stop this morning and leave it in your lap because you need to be faced with the reality of that. We can do a great many things in the name of the Lord and yet be unconverted. Remember what Jesus said to some of those who said, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And so we have to be very careful that we're distinguishing between Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and what takes place in Genesis 15. Because it was in 15 where Abraham was born again. Now turn back when we did 15 and let me read 1 through 6 so you can see it unfold now that I've got your interest in these things. Notice with me in verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abraham. Now let me pause there and just drop something in your lap for you to chew on for just a while. That's the first time this phrase has been used in the life of Abraham. And it's about to be used twice. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. Now back in verse 1, came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your very great reward, or your reward rather, shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is to be my heir. In other words, God, I can't have kids. It will be one of my slave's kids who will inherit my uh, inheritance. Verse 4, Then behold, here it is again, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. What's the difference? We see Abraham doing a lot of things in, in Genesis chapter 12, don't we? And a lot of those things that you and I would look at and go, oh, without question, they're saved. Joey, they're in church every Sunday. Or, or without question, they're saved. I saw their tithe check in the plate. 
Without question, they're saved. I know that they're doing something that God has called them to do, right? But the difference between that and what we find in 15 is Abraham did not do one single thing. God gave Abraham a promise and Abraham trusted, rested, believed in that promise. There was a moment in his life where I think Rob just read it in that letter where he committed himself to the Lord. And when he did that, it made absolutely no sense to him. He understood the impossibility of the situation. And I'll get more into this next week. He was a hundred years old and his wife's womb was entirely dead. And yet God says from your own body, you're going to have a son. And there's nothing that he could, like I said last week, there's nothing that he could bring to that. There's no gift that he could offer. There's no circumstance that he could say, well, yeah, Lord, I'm really going to help out in this process. He simply had to go, you know what? From a human perspective, that is not possible. But I understand what you're saying, God, and I fully rest and trust in your promises as absolutely true. And God reckoned that to him as righteousness. We need to be very careful to understand the difference between what is true conversion and what is not. That's why I often, let me go off on a tangent just week. I've got to bring it back to circumcision, I realize. But that's why I'm so reluctant to give you something to do. I'm so reluctant to give you something to do because you'll do it. And I realize that there are moments in your life where you, you do need to help someone pray. And I do realize that you need to be effective in communicating the gospel. You do realize Zacchaeus climbed down out of a tree and was saved. There was a moment in his life where he put his faith and trust in what Jesus Christ had done and said. And he was converted in that moment. And so I don't want you to be confused. Tyler and I were talking about this morning. It's amazing how much of the Bible is spent trying to clear up confusion in the life of those who profess faith in Christ. There's a lot of ink spilt on your behalf. And so we have to be very careful to understand the difference between chapter 12 and chapter 15 because chapter 15 made all the difference eternally. Now, chapter 15 obviously comes before chapter 17. And I want you to turn to chapter 17 with me. And we'll see Paul's argument begin to form. Notice with me 17.1. Now when Abram was, how old? 99. Now, stop. Somewhere between 75 and 99, Abraham was converted. What was that, 24 years? In other words, his conversion was a bit of a journey for Abraham. And the reason that I bring this up is because all of you right now are anxiously sitting there, and rightly so, wanting your children to come to saving faith. And I get that. But I also want you to realize it's going to be a bit of a journey for some of them. For some of them, it's probably going to take a lot longer than you want it to take. But there's some things that you need to do to express faith in God until that takes place. And number one, you need to learn to relax and trust God. Paige and I have spent 
several years in several different churches, and it's a rare thing to find a church that is faithful in preaching the gospel, but is also faithful in allowing God to work. And I myself have been guilty of it so much. I used to lead a program at a particular church, and I would teach the last lesson, and of course the last lesson would go right into one of those moments where you challenge these young children who have very little understanding of the gospel to raise their hand. And I remember dozens on dozens over those several years that I do that, dozens and dozens of those kids lifting their hand to accept Jesus Christ. And I followed some of them over the years. And it's just not good, to put it mildly. I don't want you to be anxious. I want you to trust God in the process and in the circumstances that He is bringing your children through and bringing them to saving faith. Now, I said to rest and relax, but don't you dare be lazy because there's so much you need to be doing in that process as well. Number one, you need to be praying daily for their conversion. It may very well be a while, and so you better be steadfast in prayer at least daily. Secondly, you need to be preaching the gospel to them continually. You need to be opening your mouth always, helping them see the gospel in all the different ways that we encounter in life. You need to show them how the gospel is preached through your marriage. That'll help your marriage mature really quickly. But not only do you need to preach the gospel to your kids, you need to live in light of the gospel, especially you dads. So your children can see and understand the gospel as it's built out and shaped and formed in your own life. I want you to relax, but don't you dare be lazy in seeing your kids come to faith. There's so much work for you to do. But yet at the end of the day, you're going to have to relax and let the Lord work in their hearts and bring them to saving faith. I wonder how many Christians, especially in our area, how many different times you walked the aisle and said a prayer, a prayer, or how many different times were you baptized along the way? And it's, it's kind of disappointing that you've been led so many times to do so many things over so many years when all the while God was graciously at work bringing you along to the point where He converted you and you weren't converted by a man. For Abraham... Somewhere along the journey of 24 years, God radically changed his life. And it was a process. I'm looking at Brother Ted. I remember that, John 9. It was a process, wasn't it, brother? And you've never been the same. And the church, this church, can give testimony to that. No, you've struggled at times, but you've never been the same. There was a day where Brother Ted understood the gospel and he simply trusted in what it said. And God credited to him as righteousness. And we praise the Lord for that. But in concerning with your kids and concerning with your family, trust the Lord, but be faithful and do what you are responsible to do. But let me get back to 17. I eventually, like I said, I've got to get to circumcision. So 17.1. Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him, or appeared to Abram, and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You, Abraham, will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations come from you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, now as far as you or as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Last verse, verse 10, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. When did that take place? A number of years after Abraham was converted. Now why in the world would the Lord do that? Because He wanted us to very clearly understand that the Gospel is by faith alone. And no matter how many times over church history false teachers have tried to add to this Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of grace alone, faith alone, it will not stand because God so carefully constructed the gospel in the life of Abraham. He was converted solely, singularly by trusting in what God had said. And then a great number of years later, God brought him to a covenant where something was commanded that he ought do. So anytime you run across some man or some church preaching that you need to do, you need to walk away. There is nothing that adds to your salvation. Not even the waters behind me. That does not add it. That does not confirm it. That's what we are commanded to do because we're saved by faith and faith alone. Now watch Paul build this out. Go back to Romans chapter 4. I know Paul used... And this is... I'm on the tail end of this, so... Don't let me lose you. I know you guys are paying attention and I, I probably could easily add 30 minutes. I've got them in my notes, but I'm not going to do that to you this morning. But go with me to Romans 4 and I want you to see Paul form the theology of the gospel based on this one truth. Again, I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. And I'm going to add words so we can follow along because Paul's language is funny. We don't talk in these terms anymore. Circumcised, uncircumcised. We don't say that. We don't say law and faith. We don't talk like that. But what he's trying to distinguish is because of the timeline, simply because of the timeline of how God acted in the life of Abraham, God made it so that his gospel would be for all men, whether he's a Jew or whether he's a Gentile. You know, this is why, side note here, this is why we preach verse by verse. Because the flow of the text matters. Paul built this theology after the, after the flow of the text. The timeline formed Paul's theology here. Okay? So watch how he does this. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing, the blessing of 
this righteousness that were graciously given by God, is this blessing then on the circumcised man, Jew, or is it on the uncircumcised too? For we say, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How? How was it credited? While he was circumcised or was it credited before he was circumcised? Not while circumcised, but before while he was uncircumcised. And then later, if you will, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised in order that, see God did all that for a reason, in order that he might be the father of all who believe without ever being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them as well. And he was the father of the Jew or the circumcision to those who are not only of the Jewish faith, but also must follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Whole lot of words, but you see what he's doing here. Paul's like, pay attention to the life of Abraham and you'll see the gospel take shape. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, the gospel is destroyed. Faith is made void. The promise is no good because the law always will bring about wrath or judgment. But where the law is removed, there can no longer be a violation for this reason, our salvation, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There's a lot I want to say about how to study the Bible at this moment, but I'll forgo that. I'm, I'm sure you can draw that own conclusion yourself. But do you see how careful God was in protecting His gospel by faith alone? He organized the entire lifetime of one man so you and I could understand that the only thing left on the table for us to do is simply to trust in what He has done. And that is it. And I communicate that to you week in and week out. Next Sunday will be nine years that I've tried to communicate that to you faithfully. But at the end of the day, you have to examine your own hearts to see whether or not you've come to the place in your life where you have trusted and rested in what Jesus Christ has done on Calvary on your behalf. You're good people. You're, you're, you are the, not some of the, you are the finest people I've ever been around in my entire life that I've been in a church. You do things that I cannot count. You do things that I do not know about. But at the, at the end of the day, your conversion rests in Genesis 15, 6, period. And you need to examine your own hearts concerning that matter. Now, one other thought, one other question. So, and obviously there's a great many applications, but I just really want to talk to you about one. If Genesis 15 took place, the conversion of Abraham, 
And Genesis 17 followed several years later where he was circumcised. Therefore, let me ask you this question. Who should we preach the gospel to? You realize we don't even need the New Testament to tell us that. We ought to preach the gospel to everybody because Genesis 17 comes after Genesis 15. In fact, you don't even need Genesis 15 and 17. You could back up to Genesis 12, verse 3, where God gives Abraham the promise and says this, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That would have been enough. But if you want to go a little further, you can say, Well, I'm converted in 15, didn't receive the seal of the circumcision until 17. Therefore, I should preach the gospel to the world. And you'd be exactly right. In fact, that's where Paul gets that idea. That the gospel should be preached to the ends of the earth. So let me ask you this question. Who should we extend the love and the grace of God to? Everyone. Is there any race, is there any ethnicity, is there any country that we can despise or disregard when it comes to loving and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's not a one. Not even that bald-headed guy in Russia. There's not a one that our passion should not be to present the gospel to in order to see them come to saving faith. And I'll leave you with this because I was thinking about this this morning and we're done. You know, in the last nine years, the Lord has done quite a bit. He sent some of us out and some of us are still there. But you know, I don't want to be another nine years and we're still talking about the first nine years. I don't really want to go two more years and talk about the last three years. I don't even want to do that. I don't want to talk about the rears for the ends of my days. I want to talk about the present time. And so I pray that the truth that we find in, in the time between 15 and 17 would resonate in your hearts and understand our responsibility as a church to be faithful in the proclamation of this gospel to every nation. I often pray for your kids and, you know, I pray that you'd have them and you had them. But now I'm praying that God would send them because I don't want them to be like this generation is now. No offense if you're in this generation. I'm not knocking you, but I want your kids to be different. I want them to be more committed than I ever was. And I want them to be more kingdom minded than I've ever been. And I want the young men to become preachers. And I want all of them to become missionaries that God would be faithful to call. And I'll cry with you when they leave. That's no problem. I'll be glad to sit on the couch and weep with you. But I also want you to know that your heart as well as mine will be filled with joy that God would use them in such extraordinary ways as seeing His glory advanced among the nations. Let's pray.